There's a long tradition in political science of using voter rationality to test the health of our democracy. But could this myopia be misguided? Are there any situations where irrational and uninformed voters could actually generate a healthier democracy? We are taking a short summer break to catch up on some incredible episodes that we have in the works. But in the meantime, we are going to reshare some of our prior conversations that we think are the most vital and fascinating. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon with new episodes of Not Another Politics Podcast. I am Anthony Fowler. I'm Violetta. I'm Will Howell, and this is Not Another Politics Podcast. Reflecting back on the shows that we've done, we've had a series of conversations, and it was put in stark relief when we focused on Phil Converse's paper, his famous paper, thinking about the belief systems of mass publics and arguing that, well, their views aren't stable over time, they're not correlated with one another, they don't fit into a hierarchy of beliefs. The first thought that comes to mind when we want to characterize the beliefs of average citizens is that they, is that they think very little. But standing right behind that finding, such as it is, is a bigger debate about, you know, the health of our democracy and whether or not we can hang together as a people and whether or not our government is going to be responsive in one way or another to the interests of the people and whether or not people who are elected to office are going to work hard on behalf of the people. And there's this natural sense in which we think, well, a more informed public is one that necessarily will demand a more responsive, a more hardworking set of political actors, uh, elected officials. I mean, is that true? Like, should we believe that to be true? This is one of our favorite topics on the podcast. We, uh, I think at one point, maybe we stopped doing it, but our producer would ring a little bell every time we talked about voter rationality. And I would, I would usually, you know, be the one defending voter rationality. And, you know, and there's an interesting question that we haven't covered on the podcast, which is that even if voters are totally irrational and uninformed and they have all the pathologies that we've we've you know that that people claim they have is that necessarily a bad thing for democracy if voters were irrational or uninformed or or bad in some way does that necessarily mean that outcomes political outcomes are going to be really bad and so viola you talked to one of our colleagues who has done some work in this area yes i talked to Ethan Bueno de Mesquita, who has a paper with Scott Ashworth. Both of them are at Harris. The paper is called Is Voter Competence Good for Voters? Information, Rationality and Democratic Performance. And they ask exactly this question. Is it always the case that voters are better off when they are more informed, more rational and less misguided? The answer they provide is, is somewhat surprising at first glance. So uh, let's have a listen. So some researchers and pundits and media worried that American public is actually uninformed, misguided, and plain irrational when it comes to voting. Should we worry about that too? Should we worry about what that means for our democracy? So I'm going to give maybe a slightly dissatisfying answer, which is like, it depends. So you might have good reasons to think that it's important that voters make sort of rational decisions when they're engaged in politics seems like a fine thing for people to believe, but things are much more complicated than people's intuitions suggest. That is, it's just not the case that in our standard ways of thinking about electoral accountability, that it's always good for voters to be more informed, or even that it's always good for voters to be more rational. And so if the kind of argument you're interested in is a kind of democratic outcomes argument, that is the quality of governance that we get, it is not straightforward at all to conclude that because you have, say, some evidence that voters are ill-informed, 
or some evidence that voters are behaving in ways that look irrational, that that means elections are failing to achieve the things that elections are supposed to achieve to help us get uh, better governance outcomes. So let's try to unpack it. If voters know what kind of policies politicians implement, if voters observe how much effort they put into governing, then they can reward good politicians, politicians who exert effort and implement good policies. And that in turn disciplines politicians to behave well. What can go wrong? Why can it be the case that a voter can do those things better when she's actually uninformed? It is, of course, true that people faced with a decision, the more information they have about that decision, the better they make that decision. But elections aren't simple decisions like that. Elections are kind of complicated strategic relationships between politicians and voters. And so what can go wrong has to do with that relationship. So let me just see if I can unpack that a little bit. The way political scientists who think about electoral accountability think about it is that voters actually have two tasks at the ballot box. One task is the giving of incentives to politicians. That is, you want politicians to be thinking, if I don't do a good job, good job here defined as things voters want, but I don't do a good job, I might lose my, my election. And therefore I have good incentives to try and do a good job, to work hard, to do things ideologically that the voters like, to seek out good policies, things like that. The other part of a voter's job is to identify those politicians who have characteristics which the voters like, right? So voters have this dual problem at the ballot box of sort of giving backward looking incentives, um, saying, if you don't do a good job, I'm throwing you out and giving forward looking selection. That is, if you turn out to be the kind of person I like, the kind of politician I want, I'm going to reelect you. I'm going to select you. And those two things can be intention. So like an easy way to say to see that is like, suppose that there's just like two kinds of politicians, you know, ideologically consonant with voters and ideologically divergent from voters. And let's say those politicians have super good incentives. They really think if they don't th do things that voters like, voters are going to throw them out. So now these ideologically consonant politicians and these ideologically divergent politicians, they're all going to do things voters like. So that's good incentives, right? But... That means at the ballot box, voters have no information on which to select people going forward. And kind of the easiest way to see the problem is, suppose tomorrow they're going to be term limited. So now I, I accidentally selected a person who really disagrees with me and they're term limited. I'm going to get up, end up getting policies tomorrow I really don't like. And it might be then that a voter would like to have given somewhat weaker incentives at that, at that first stage, let politicians, extremists and moderates or whatever differ from each other a bit so that when they got to the ballot box, it's true the incentives were weaker and they suffered today, but they can do a better job of selecting the politicians who agree with them for tomorrow. So it's not a simple matter of like all good things go together at the ballot box. Sometimes good incentives and good ability to weed out the bad types or the types I disagree with are in tension with each other. And a rational voter, at the time that it's time to vote, the past is in the past. And so they're really focused on looking forward. That's what it means to be rational at the ballot box. It's like, I can't do anything about the incentives. They're already over. So a rational voter, for instance, is going to really focus on selecting the good types. And that might mean that they do a really bad job of providing the incentives for yesterday. And a slightly irrational voter who says things like, you know what, I punish you for bad stuff in the past, even though it doesn't matter for the future might provide better incentives. And so that's like one simple way in which a little bit of irrationality at the ballot box, it's bad for going forward, but it might be if the politicians know you're that kind of irrational person, that might provide them better incentives earlier on, and that might actually be helpful to voters. And you can tell similar stories with information. So can you give me like a simple example where I can see how indeed my irrational or 
slightly uninformed behavior makes politicians behave in that way that I like. Yeah. So suppose that I get to directly observe, say, your policy choice. So I'm really well informed. Yeah. Then you, the politician, face a very stark choice. You can either reveal who you are, and if you're the type I don't like, not get reelected, or you can entirely pretend to be the type I do like, yeah, and get reelected. And then tomorrow you can do what you like. Okay. So suppose we're in this situation where when the voter really observes everything, the politicians want to get reelected, so they all act the same. A voter who cares about today right, likes that because they're getting, they're getting what they want today at the expense of not being able to do tom much tomorrow. But a voter who thinks that tomorrow is going to be really important, let's say like maybe there's going to be a financial crisis tomorrow or whatever, they would prefer to be able to sort of irrationally commit to ignoring their information, right? To saying like, I'm not going to observe your actions so that you can do slightly different things and I can learn more about you, right? So this voter would like, because they care so much about tomorrow, they would like to find a way to learn about the politician. And the only way, as we've just seen, to be able to learn about the politician is to not observe what the politicians did right? Not observe their exact policy. So the politicians don't have this incentive to all behave exactly the same. So that's interesting. And it seems to be true to me, but that seems a little bit theoretical. Can you sort of phrase this intuition in terms of a real world policy? Can we think about corruption, taxation? I don't know, something that, that sort of would feel natural to us. I mean, I, I just think everything's like this. So we can think about any policy we like, um, I agree it's kind of theoretical, but I think we are responding to really a theoretical argument. That is, the literature we're responding to is this literature primarily that says we've either observed that voters on surveys don't seem to know very much about policy. Um, they say, oh, well, if voters don't know anything about policy. How can they possibly do a sophisticated job of, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or a literature that says, you know, all sorts of things happen in the world that aren't the fault of politicians. There's a hurricane or there's a football loss or whatever. And then Voters seem nonetheless to respond to those things. Voters are, you know, voters are totally irrational. How can we expect, possibly expect uh, these people to provide us with good governance through voting? And then they'll say things like, therefore, because we've observed that voters don't know about policy and voters respond to hurricanes, even though politicians don't cause hurricanes, therefore, democracy cannot be defended on the grounds of elections providing good governance or providing accountability. It must be defended in some other way if it's going to be defended at all. Some of them will say like, if voters are like this, maybe democracy is the wrong thing. What we want to say is it's just a mistake to think about elections and democracy like it was a decision that you make at the supermarket where no one's res responding to you. And you just can't learn things about democratic performance from facts about voters alone. Everything is contingent on the relationship between voters and politicians. And so if you want to evaluate how well democracy is doing at providing governance, it simply will never do to record a bunch of facts about voters without recording any facts about politicians, right? So we're not trying to make the argument, I guess I want to emphasize this, we're not trying to make the argument it's always good for voters to be irrational or it's always good for voters to have less information. That's a ridiculous argument. What we're trying to do is, is say, the, the discussion has gone off the rails a little bit by its single-minded focus on voters and facts about voters on their own don't tell you the things you want to know to evaluate a democratic system. Okay, so so let me try again using some of the literature that you quoted. So, so I think the biggest assault against voters' rationality and what that means for democracy, for, for elections, for selection and, and provision of incentives came from Aiken and Bartels. They basically documented that voters seem to respond to those 
things that are obviously not under con- the control of the politicians. And I think the most famous example is uh, shark attacks. There seems to be some relationship between shark attacks and, voter pol- and, and be- voters actually punishing uh, politicians who are currently in power. This kind of irrationality must be bad for democracy. Okay, so let me say two things about that. First, let me quickly talk about whether or not we learn voters are, are irrational from the fact that electoral fortunes seem to suffer after a hurricane or a shark attack, whatever. Let's, let's think about hurricanes. So it's just not correct to think that the fact that incumbents election, electoral fortunes on average are hurt by hurricanes, that that means voters are irrationally responding to hurricanes. And a simple way to see that is to notice that although hurricanes are not the fault of politicians, hurricanes interact with policy decisions by, po- by politicians in lots of ways. So just think about New Orleans and whether the levees were properly uh, maintained. In the absence of a hurricane, voters don't get to learn whether or not the levees are properly maintained because there's no challenge to the levees. In the presence of a hurricane, voters do get to learn whether or not the levees are maintained. So voters are learning more about their politicians and their politicians' performance in office when a hurricane comes. And suppose it's the case, as is the case in, say, American elections, that there's a big incumbency advantage. So most of the time, incumbents get reelected unless something really bad happens. Absent a hurricane, you might think there's no chance voters are going to learn something that's going to get them to kick their incumbents out. So in all the places that don't have hurricanes, the voters don't learn very much and the incumbents get reelected. In places that get hurricanes, sometimes the levees are well-maintained and the incumbents still get reelected. And sometimes the levees are, are shown to be not properly maintained. The voters conclude their politicians are incompetent or corrupt or whatever, and they toss them out. And now on average, having had a hurricane is going to be bad for incumbents' electoral fortunes. Voters weren't irrational at all. They just used their information correctly, right? So it's already, that empirical literature is already wrong to conclude that they know something about voter irrationality, simply from the fact that things like natural disasters look like they're bad for politicians on average, because natural disasters provide voters with valuable information. Okay, so that's thing one. So maybe voters aren't irrational at all, but let's say they are. It's still not the case that you can conclude that that's bad for democratic performance. And it's for exactly the reasons we've already talked about. So let's say that voters respond to hurricanes. Well, it could be that prior to that response to the hurricanes, voters were, say, providing incentives that were too strong. And so politicians were all you know, behaving the same and voters were having trouble sorting them out. And now if they, if they respond to the hurricane, politicians might say, oh, you know what? The hurricane came. I'm going to get punished. I'm free now. I, I already am this trouble electorally. I'm free to do what I want. And now voters get to learn about them and observe what they actually want to do. And now voters can, right, can respond to that, that new information. So this deviation from rationality, if it is indeed a, re- a deviation from rationality, which we're not sure, but this deviation from rationality could be good. It could be bad, depending on whether the prior situation involved uh, you know, the balance of too many incentives and too little selection or too much too little incentives and too much selection. Like it's just any kind of rationality, irrationality could be good. Though I, I, I want to reemphasize, we really don't know that voters are irrational simply from the fact that hurricanes are bad for incumbents. So basically what you're telling me is that it is sort of a fruitless exercise to try to document voters' irrationality because even the starkest irrational, kind of irrationality could somehow lead to good outcomes if we have the right model or if we, if, if we take into account uh, the politician's uh, response. But still, I, I think you would agree that it's worth to study whether the democracy is functioning well. So, so what kind of advice do you have for this literature? Absolutely, yeah. So one wants to know, so I'll say two things. Like 
documenting voter irrationality may be a fine thing to do if what you are interested in for sort of non-normative reasons or for normative reasons that aren't about democratic performance uh, is voter behavior. Like if you're a person interested in voter behavior, then good for you, right? The the place where we want to draw a line is to say, like, if you want to go from that to normative conclusions about democratic performance, you've made a mistake. Rather than simply saying, are voters up to the task of democracy and, in, and ignoring all the other stuff about governance, we could ask the sort of straightforward comparative institutional question. So we could look within a democracy and you know have some measure of democratic performance, say, whatever, that could be economic growth, that could be uh, the cost of debt, it could be, you know, who knows, you know, come up with some measure that you think reflects what you are hoping good governance is, right, the absence of war, and ask comparative institutional questions when we have term limits versus don't have term limits to think, do, do, do we get better performance or worse performance? And why? When we have parliamentary democracy versus presidential democracy, do we get better? performance? There's all sorts of questions one can ask that allow you to normatively evaluate uh, the performance of democracy and the relative performance of democracy that seem to me quite directly informative about, about democratic performance. And, and by the way, also are about things that we might actually be able to change, right? If it's the case that voters are simply fundamentally irrational, like that might just be a fact about human nature. And what are you going to do about it? Like, so knowing that you can wring your hands, but I'm not sure what else the advice is. Whereas if you learn that term limits uh, are really bad because they force politicians out of office who voters really liked and force voters to take people who were not as good, otherwise they would have been elected in the first place. Well, you can get rid of term limits. You can change from a parliamentary system to a presidential system or back. You know what I mean? Like, so I think like the, the comparative institutional questions are much more both fruitful in terms of actually getting the outcome we want, and they're more fruitful in terms of being about policies that we might actually think about adjusting. Your model has two periods. And the intuition you gave me has two periods. I and, knew you were going to ask this. Yes. And, and the story you told me also relied on two periods and the politician being uh, term limited. What do we know about the story carrying over to, to the world where, you know, senators are not term limited? Yeah. Um, so I'll give a, maybe I'll try and give like a slightly precise answer and then a slightly hand wavy answer, if that's okay. So I think the precise answer would be like, in some sense, we don't know anything um, in that we haven't solved that model. And we know that models like that are a little bit messy, although, you know, there's been some progress on the models with, of, of that sort. And those models do tend to have, like, like when you can write down something about those models, they do tend to nonetheless have these two forces at work that we're talking about. That is, uh, there is a component of them, which is about backward looking incentives. And there is a component of them, which is about learning about politicians and trying to select the kinds of politicians the voters like. And it is really the tension between those two forces, which is driving our results, right? The tension between those two, that, that at the time it's time to vote, you're thinking about the rest of the game, not the, the past, but the past matters for your, for your well-being because the past also affected you. So I would be shocked to learn it's not the case that exactly the same thing is true. And I, so the other sort of precise thing we can say, right, is that the game theory literature itself, like independent outside of the literature on electoral accountability, the game theory literature itself has results which say, right, generically, uh, a little bit of irrationality is good for a player in a game. It seemed to me to be almost miraculous were it the case, putting together the fact that the same forces are at work uh, in the dynamic models that people can solve, and the fact that we know quite generally in games, irrationality can help players, uh, that miraculously, 
in electoral accountability games with the features we're already talking about, but slightly more complicated because of the dynamics, that the same thing wasn't going on. Voters just really do, I think, face this tension between the thing they want to do, which is like do well for themselves in the future, and the thing they wish they cared about, which was behaving in a way that maximized their overall well-being, including their effect on past behavior. That just seems like a fundamental trade-off to me. And irrationality tends to help in those models because it provides some sort of commitment. Is that right? Exactly. I mean, exactly. It allows you, by doing the thing that's best for you going forward, you are kind of not doing the thing that's best for you, considering also its effects on the past through its anticipation. And so by being able to commit to something a little bit different, you can give up a little bit of the future for improvements in the past that are that are going to matter more. Well, thank you, Ethan. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, super interesting, Viola. So they present a series of models that cast doubt on the proposition that lack of knowledge or or lack of rationality on the part of voters is necessarily harmful to the welfare of voters by reference to either the willingness of elected officials to vote in ways that conform to their policy views or their willingness to exert costly effort on behalf of the voters. So can you sort of give us a sense of how these models work? So the first example would be of a partisan world in which, let's say, some voters uh, prefer a Republican representative and some voters prefer a Democratic representative. Take a representative who belongs to a Republican party and is representing a Republican district. It's sort of reasonable to assume that this representative could feel a little bit safe in her position because anyway, the voters like the fact that she belongs to the Republican party, so she's probably going to win against a Democratic challenger. Such a representative doesn't really have a lot of incentive uh, to work hard. Okay, so now suppose that voters are, uh, are rational and uh, no matter what happens uh, with some sort of unrelated events, whether you know, we win the soccer game or whether there's a hurricane or shark attack, the voter completely understands that this is not because of any competence or lack of competence of the representative, then this representative you know, doesn't worry about those events and she doesn't have a lot of incentive to exert effort. That's actually bad for voters. Now, suppose that, suppose that voters are actually irrational. So when a good thing happens, they think, hey, you know, my representative is good. And when a shark attack happens, they think, well, you know, something, something is not right with my representative. Now this representative should worry because if she gets unlucky, she will be vulnerable electorally. And in that case, it's better that she actually has worked hard, very hard, to overcome this negative shock that voters will actually experience. This strikes me like a story that makes actually quite a bit of sense. And you see how in this story, being a little bit irrational helps you as a voter. You get harder working politicians. Expose the voter would be better off if she actually realized that the shark attacks were completely unrelated to her representative's competence. But ex ante, it's good if, if, if the representative thinks that she will be held responsible for that because she will try to compensate in other areas that she actually can control in order to make sure that she's safe electorally. Are our listeners really confused right now that we keep talking about shark attacks and football games? Is this like, like it, does it sound like just <laughs> nonsense words that are out of nowhere? Yeah. <laughs> so the backdrop of this paper that Ethan and Scott wrote, just important to, to, to note, is there are this the whole cottage industry of people coming along saying, oh, look, here was an instance where shark attacks affected the election. Therefore, the voters are rational. 
and therefore democracy is broken. Right. Exactly. And, and I think it's, it's worth emphasizing that, of course, if voters only respond to shark attacks and only respond to whether we won the football game, especially on the national level when you are just electing your governors, if that's the only thing that the voters are responding to, of course, that's not good for democracy. But what Ethan and, show, uh, and Scott show is that even on top of all the other usual things that the voters respond to, which we have some evidence that they actually do, they also respond to these completely unrelated shocks that might benefit them in certain circumstances. What the, what the literature, the behavioral literature is missing is that they don't pay any attention to the effects that information or rationality have for uh, the incentives of ele elected officials, either to moderate the positions, that is, assume positions that conform with the wishes of the people who they represent, or to work harder on behalf of elected officials. Um, it's, that, it's that missing piece. So, you know, the challenge, a republic, if we can keep it, right, that keeping it necessarily means that all uh, voters become behave in ways that are strictly rational and accumulate more and more information ignores the fact that, well, under some instances, a lack of information creates desirable incentives for elected officials to work harder and to pay more and to go out of their way to show, no, 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 really, I am the moderate type. I really am truly going to behave in ways that are consistent with your, with your, with your wishes. So it's worth emphasizing here, the voters care about selecting the best candidate and they also care about, well, they would like to, although they may not be able to do so rationally, but they would like the incumbent and their elected officials to work really hard. And work really hard could mean a bunch of different things. It could mean moderate their policy positions to do what the voters want on policy. It could mean, you know, work really hard to spend a lot of time in the office to deliver the best public goods. Or it could mean avoiding corruption or things like that. So they want, the, they want effort. The reason maybe this finding is so unintuitive is that those two things kind of cut in different directions. So on the one hand, more information, more information and more rationality should always be good for selection on ability, right? If, if you're just trying to find the best, select the best candidate, the voters would in expectation be better off. The more informed they are, the more rational they are, that's good. But sometimes more information and more rationality can cut against the other consideration, which is they can induce the incumbent to work a little bit less hard because he or she might say, I already know I'm going to get elected or I already know I'm not going to get elected. And so why bother? Why bother working hard or why bother avoiding corruption or why bother moderating my positions to please the voters, et cetera? So, um, so it's, that, it's that, that tension is important between these two things. So, so your intuition might be right that information and rationality is always a good thing if you're just trying to select the better candidate. But that's not, you know, but there's also other stuff you care about. In addition to selecting whichever candidate's better, you'd also like your current elected official to work hard on your behalf. They're not saying that more information is always bad, but they're also not saying it's always good. It depends upon different parameter uh, values uh, assumed uh, in, in, in the model, what state of the world we're actually occupying, which is then why we can't draw any straightforward conclusions about this big debate about, you know, how rational or how informed voters are, what that means for the health of our democracy. So that could be, I mean, if you were designing our institutions from scratch, would we want to think about various reforms that we could implement that would, you know, that, that, would, that would think about both of these things that we, you know, how do we, how do we both, how do we both increase the chances that the best candidates are reelected while also creating incentives for them to work hard? You know, would we want to design an institution that means, you know, that, means that voter irrationality isn't so bad or something. You know, I don't, I don't know. How, do you guys have any thoughts on that? In light of this paper, are there, are there ways you might change our institutions? There are all kinds of efforts to inform voters about 
what candidates stand for and what their record has been. I think we're accustomed to saying those are obviously good, right? The kind of good government types who want to say, no, 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 we're going to give you cheat sheets on how to vote. And I'm going to give you information. We have an app that's available to you that will tell you all the information about all the votes that your elected official has cast. Should, should we send a copy of Ethan and Scott's paper to everybody's funding those efforts <laughs> and say, you're not helping or you're not necessarily yeah. helping? You're right. You're helping um, on selection, but it's ambiguous on accountability. And that's given that it's costly. Right, yeah. Right. Right. So that's a very interesting question. I think I know where I fall, but I don't know whether I, I can articulate why. So I think it's unambiguously good from some, some sort of, in some normative sense, to give voters information whenever you can, even if it leads to worse outcomes. It has to be for reasons outside of the model, right? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm I mean, actually, you're, you're you're adopting a non-utilitarian uh, moral yes, position, yeah, which is yeah, I think which is surprising yeah. because I actually <laughs> am very utilitarian in most uh, areas of my life. So yeah, so you tell me why. You probably share my view. I share, yeah, I do share your view. I think, yeah, I mean, I think if I think it would be a ridiculous argument. Don't inform those voters because I mean, shoot, let's talk about something controversial for a second. Let's think about. Anthony Fauci or some other public health official who says, you know what, I, I've got to be very careful and control the information that I give people because I know what the right behavior is. I know that they should be vaccinated and they should be social distancing and so forth. And I also know what I should tell them to maximize the chances that they carry out that behavior. Um, so he's adopting this very utilitarian framework. And I think Viola is basically saying, I don't agree with that. And I think there's some sense in which it's wrong to, to give people misinformation, and it's a good thing to give people information, even if it leads to outcomes that you don't think are the right outcomes. Yeah, I mean, there are two objections to what you've described, <laughs> right? One is that even on its own terms, it's misguided because the thing that you say today in order to manipulate undermines right. your ability right. to affect positive change tomorrow. <laughs> so there's that. Right. But, then, but then as you point out, Anthony, like, putting that aside, there's something lost just in the deceit or in the failure to provide clear information. But I think, if nothing else, Scott and Ethan have demanded that we articulate what that is. Because again, at least in some instances, the provision of the information, the increase in the rationality has the effect of inducing changes in behavior of elected officials that are welfare reducing. And so you've got to be able to say there's something about the, you know, the, the intrinsic value or the virtue born of uh, rationality or greater information that matters in its own right, or maybe it matters in our ability to come together uh, in ways that generate goods that can be understood, again, apart from yeah. changes True. in incentives of elected officials. Yeah, I think that if, if I were to say something, I would say that there's a bigger game that we are playing. So maybe, you know, you can find circumstances in which providing voters with information about what positions your uh, representative took is going to actually somehow mess up the incentives that politicians have when they are taking those positions. But in a greater sense, a more informed electorate perhaps is going to push for better electoral reforms, better institutional reforms. It's going to be a more engaged uh, uh, electorate in the long run. It's going to be aware about the, you know, the perverse incentives that elections um, create and, and is going to be more willing to think about what can we do to actually avoid those perverse incentives. So I think in the, in the meta game, probably information is good. So I'll throw out an institutional reform. I want to hear your thoughts on this. 
The fundamental problem we've talked about is this trade. You can't simultaneously select the best candidate and incentivize your existing candidates to work really hard. So the kind of thing that would make sense from an institutional reform standpoint would be if you had another lever, right? So if I hire somebody, I, I can decide whether I, I retain them or not. Like, do I, do, I, you know, do I fire them or keep them on the job? I could also decide whether I give them a raise or not, right? And I have, two, I have at least those two levers. And so that's one way that I might you know, get around this problem, right? You might worry that someone will do just the very, very bare minimum so that they don't get fired. One thing that I have in my favor that can keep them from happening is I can, I can incentivize them in other ways. I can, I can give them a promotion, I can give them a raise, I can give them a nicer office or something. And so that gets people working a little bit harder, even if they know that they're probably not going to be fired. Should we consider giving a voter a similar lever like that? What if, hypothetically, and this is not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fully endorsing this yet, but let's just play, we, we sometimes talk about crazy ideas on the show. What if the ballot box came around and you could, there were two things. You're, you know, your governor's up for re-election this year. Would you, and there's an election. Do you want to, do you want to vote to re-elect your incumbent governor or vote for the challenger? And then separately, would you like to give a hundred thousand dollar bonus to your governor? Yes or no? And you could do either one. You could say yes. You I mean want to a, a conditional bonus? Let's say I'm promising that if this incoming governor achieves certain employment rate. Because you you want to incentivize yes. them, so let's say you, conditional. So that yes. would be so you could do it a pre-committal kind of thing. I mean, that would be yeah. the more maybe more rational thing to do is to say yes. Or just would you like? I mean, that could, I mean that could, that's almost a different thing. You could actually yeah, you could have the legislature vote on some incentive scheme. Like if GDP growth is above some threshold, yeah. or the you know if if Pritzker reduces the pension debt by X percent somehow magically, um, we're going to give him a bonus, right? Um, so like yeah, when you get your coffee, like you don't you can tip. And you can tip by a different amount. You want to, you want to tip it. No, you want to tip jar. I think the problem with you is, yeah, the tip, the tip is irrational in the sense that, is that if you were hyper rational, you would always not give the tip, right? Like you would, for the same reason that you know you can't, you know, you'd say like, well, I'm, I'm happy that he did a good job, but like now, why am I going to, you know? Um, so yeah, so so what, I don't know. Is there is there something there? Could we come up with some other crazy scheme that both? ensures that we, when we're voting, we can always just focus on, we can be hyper-rational and hyper-informed and focus on always re-electing electing the better candidate, the higher ability candidate, while simultaneously having some other mechanism that induces them to work hard. And so therefore, I, when you said the other mechanism, yeah. what I was imagining mm -hmm. is not that there would be another lever given to the voter, although I do love the idea of tipping. <laughs> A tip, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, A little hard. Yeah. Jar. Um, but rather look, we have a press or we have inspectors general that also oversee the behavior of elected officials and have access to different kinds of information and can punish elected officials in, in different kinds of ways. That There isn't this, you know, our politics is not just informed by the incentives born of uh, uh, a representative voter who shows up and casts a single vote about whether or not to retain or not on the basis of more or less information. Um, that there are more informed and more engaged uh, uh, folks. And then also within parties, you can imagine. There another other kinds of discipline being wielded wherein they care about the reputation of the party more generally. And, and so to the extent that we do, in fact, live in a world in which there are lots of levers being um, uh, of accountability, being uh, put to use by lots of different people with varying levels of information, do you find comfort in that? Like, is that by then by way of saying, okay, given that there are lots of levers, that then at the margin, more information from any one ought to be a good thing. Do you mean by, by lots of levers, you just mean like there's, you know, in addition to electoral incentives, 
the governor is going to be shamed if they do a bad job. There also, there's also, if you think that there's party discipline, they, you, the, the, the person who's an elected official is looking down at that representative voter, but also is looking over at this inspector general who is watching her behavior, is also looking over at the press, who's also looking over at a party chieftain. Um, and all of these things are weighing upon. I'm not sure if any of that's reassuring. I mean, I, that, that seems, <laughs> right? I mean, that seems very troubling, the idea that our elected officials, not only are they worrying about being accountable to the median voter, they're also worried about being accountable to their party leaders and to their donors. And that, that seems like a reason to be troubled. Um, but, I mean, your lead was, let's think about having more ways to punish and right. reward. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about giving the voter. You know, let's give the median voter two levers. So... I have a thought about that. <laughs> so clearly, if voters are rational, yes, then I, I know. I see, that's I see that, exactly yeah, yeah. That, that's a better thing to do. <laughs> they have more levers now; they can structure the contract with with the politician uh, better, and they get better outcomes. That's unambiguous. But then we go back to this behavioral literature, and then they have a point. If we have this very complicated system where the provision of incentives really depends on voters being rational and being able to, to structure these contracts in an optimal way, then we should really worry about them not being rational. Because, of course, you know, whether my contract will provide effort or not depends on, on whether I understand what unemployment is and, and what's reasonable, what's not reasonable as an um, incentive and so on. And, and then I think all hell can break loose. The other reassuring part of that is that we can feel better in saying, okay, we've designed a system that's more you know, incentive compatible on the part of the voters. And if now the voters can, be, can do a good job of being informed and rational, then it's going to lead to better outcomes. That, that seems like something that we should be happy about. I mean, then we should definitely give one advice to the people who provide information. Yes, go ahead and make voters informed. But you know, for all the yeah, but for all the criticism that we directed towards that literature in our podcast, uh, you know, I, I do think they are right on one thing, that voters are, are not hyper-rational. I think our position was never that they are hyper-rational. Our, our position was they are rational enough, and Ethan and Scott say, and that might not even matter. But I think it's very hard to sort of make an argument that voters are hyper-rational, that they will be able to really design the contract for the politicians in a way that's not going to backfire. Even, you know, I would have to think about it very hard and write my little silly model to figure out what's the optimal contract. And I would miss a lot of things and, you know, yeah, I would so, devote my career to that. No, yeah, so, I'm, so, not, yeah I'm not, I'm uh, more, I'm not proposing I'm, that voters write some very complicated contract. Yeah. But my, my, you know, my simple proposal of like the bonus... And I understand it's not it's not a perfect one, but my simple proposal: voters would make some. I think I think voters are perfectly rational to do that kind of thing. They might say, "Yes, obviously, I prefer this candidate over that candidate. I prefer this candidate. You know, I prefer the incumbent governor over the challenger. They're the lesser of the two evils." But I don't think they did a very good job, and I don't want to pay them the bonus this time around. So we need to go walk down the hall. And talk to Ethan and yes. Scott and say, we, there's another model we want you to analyze, right? It's right, one right, that right, has right. the tip now, jar. Now, it doesn't really work. The reason it doesn't really work that well is that we don't really know what the voters' behavior with the tip jar would be. And again, I mean, like I said, I mean, the hyper-rational thing would be to say, well, why ever pay the bonus? It's just taxpayer dollars going to somebody else. And they've already done the hard work. And so you, like, you'd, have to, you'd have to think about it. This is, we're just thinking out loud here. We're just, we're just throwing stuff out there. But, yeah, I'm, but I'm saying maybe we should be thinking outside the box. We should be thinking about how to give the voters more than one lever so that they can, they, we can get better selection and accountability at the same time.
if you are getting a lot out of the important research shared on this show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Entitled. International lawyers Claudia Flores and Tom Ginsburg have traveled the world getting into the weeds of global human rights debates. On Untitled, they use that expertise to explore the stories and thorny questions around why rights matter and what's the matter with rights. Subscribe to Untitled, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. I want to ask you guys a question, which is, I think all three of us take their challenge to the behavioral literature very seriously um, and think it points to something really fundamental. But then I'm also hearing some sort of misgivings about the kind of core claim that comes from their paper. Not that it in our, you know, in our research, we ought to be paying attention to the voter in interaction with, in engagement with elected officials. Yes. But some hesitance about whether or not we should conclude that the provision of information, maybe we don't want it, or maybe we want to take it away. And, you know, we've, we have on this show lamented the kind of the demise of local news as being obviously bad for voters. Should, having read Scott Nathan's paper, we reconsider that? Do you guys want to reconsider it? Should we say, oh, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's not so bad because we've lost this institution, um, but it's altered incentives in ways that under at least for some circumstances, maybe welfare enhancing. If you're betting, like, do you, have you, are you guys now less likely to make your contributions to the <laughs> NPR? So you put, us, you put us on the spot. If I'm betting, for sure, I would say, I still think it's on net a bad thing that you know, we have declining local news and so forth. I think on, on net, we're much better off with more, with more informed voters. So why is that? I mean, one is that I, we still think his selection is really important, right? I mean, there are big differences. There, there are some candidates who are just, they're just higher ability and more competent than other candidates. And there are some candidates whose ideological positions are much better for the voters than other candidates. And so that selection part is critical. I mean, some amount of information is, of course, essential for accountability, right? Like, if there's no information, right? There's, if there's no information, surely there's some kind of, there's some kind of non-monotonicity here, right? If, there, if you have no information, then you can't hold anybody accountable. There's no incentive for the elected officials to work hard. Of course, if we have so much information that we already perfectly observe their ability, and we already know which candidates are better, then of course there's no incentive either. And the middle ground is where, where, where you get a lot of accountability. My hunch is that I don't think of that as the, the Laffer curve of information and accountability. We're on the left side of that Laffer curve, right? Like we are in most cases when it comes to like voting for local offices, state legislators, you know, water board, judges, like we are way on the left side of that thing. And more information is going to be on net a good thing for both selection and accountability. But of course, I mean, I buy the general story of the paper that there could be some some settings where where too much information can all of a sudden push us over to the point where we actually get less effort and less accountability. But my hunch is that for the vast majority of offices, especially the kinds of things that you're relying on your local newspaper to inform you about, um, we're on the we're on the the other side of that curve, and we would we would like people to be more informed. And then I, I also share Viola's view, which is that there is some sense in which even if you know we don't have to be utilitarians, and we can say it's good, it's a good thing to inform people, even if it does in some sense lead lead politicians to exert less effort, and there's some utilitarian sense in which outcomes are not quite as good. Um, it's still a good thing on net for just virtuous reasons to be informing people. 
if, we're, if we are in a world in which information starts to become a bad thing for political outcomes, then we should really start thinking about how to redesign our political institutions to avoid that problem. Because the, the answer can't be like, wait a minute, we should, we should make sure people are less informed. That doesn't seem like the right answer. And yet they show explicitly that there are well-defined conditions under which voters would be decidedly better off if they behaved in ways that were irrational or they had access to less information. That's what comes from it. And if that's true, the natural, um, when we think about reforms, the natural uh, uh, thing to think about is, well, what, what's, you know, where are we in this space? And then might we optimally extract information under the right circumstances so that politicians will behave differently so that voters will be made better off? Yeah, but they say it, it's also a fruitless exercise. It's just impossible to really delineate the circumstances in which, in, in a sort of empirically relevant way, the circumstances in which more information is better, in which more information is worse. So then we should let these other considerations actually guide us in answering this question. And as Anthony pointed out, there are many other considerations that push us in the direction, yes, let's keep the voters informed. This is the right thing to do. And um, that's where I stand. <laughs> That's my bottom line. What's your bottom line, Will? <laughs> um, I guess my bottom line, and the, the place to retreat to is the place that they retreat to in the paper, which is that if we really care about evaluating the health of our democracy, it won't do to just engage in this decades-long exercise of trying to measure how much information voters do or do not have. It's fruitless. And we need to then think about the system as a whole. We need to think about voters, sure, but voters in as they interact with elected officials and as elected officials alter their behavior in response to uh, voters. That seems, that seems decidedly correct um, and as, the kind of, as a core lesson to take away from the paper and one that I hope more political scientists will heed, I buy entirely. Yeah? Are we done? Do I get a bottom line? I didn't give a bottom line, but that's okay. You didn't give a bottom line. You oh, no, you didn't. didn't. You said oh, okay. like what you thought, but you didn't give a bottom line on the paper. Okay. So what is your bottom line? On all, right, let me give, all right, let me give a very grand bottom line. Can I give a grand bottom line? Yes. I am, Come on. I am sick and tired. You're going to be really surprised by my <laughs> I am sick and tired of this literature saying, look, voters are dominant or irrational, uh, and therefore democracy is broken. That's wrong, and it's wrong for at least four reasons, probably more. One... <laughs> Settle in, folks. <laughs> One, the evidence that voters are irrational is just not very good, and they're actually not as irrational as people claim. Two, even if the voters are irrational or uninformed or hyperpartisan or whatever people say they are, that doesn't necessarily mean that aggregate election outcomes are bad. Could be that most voters are kind of irrational, but still in the aggregate, the election is kind of going in the right direction, and therefore you still have lots of good... Three is the point of this paper, which is even if aggregate election outcomes are kind of irrational and nonsensical, that doesn't necessarily mean that outcomes are going to be bad, because you also have to think about the incentives of elected officials. And four, even if outcomes are bad, we, don't, we still have to compare that to something else. You have to say, okay, sure, maybe democratic outcomes are bad, but relative to what? Not relative to autocracy. So, you know, uh, we should. This is a ridiculous argument, and we should uh, we should be done with this argument. And I think Ethan and Scott are doing a great service to our field by sort of picking those apart and saying, you know, here are all of the different ways in which this argument is a misleading argument, and they need to do better if they want to if they want to make these grand claims about democracy being broken. They need they have a lot they have a lot more work ahead of them, and uh, and probably those claims don't make any sense, and so they should be doing something else. They should be saying, okay, what can we say about the health of democracy and, and so forth based on the kind of evidence that we have. 
Here, here. Is that it? Did I did I deliver? Beautiful. All right, I. <laughs> yes. That was. I showed it here. Yeah, from the mountaintop. I didn't hold back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodup. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.